Good morning. My name is Ron. I'm one of the elders here at uh, Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church, and um, I have the privilege and honor to read the scripture verse today. We're in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 to 6, verse 11. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints would judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But yourselves wrong and defrauded, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that your unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterous, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of our, of our God. Please pray with me as Paul comes up to preach the word of God. Heavenly Father, we are grateful and thankful for for the, your word. Help us to change uh, us through your word, Lord. Help us to hear the word spoken today. Bless us, we pray, Lord. Bless Paul as he preaches the word and help him to um, bring it with strength and life. Let this word live, Lord. Give us words to hear and hearts that are soft today. Change us. Draw us close to you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to gather together with God's people on this, the Lord's Day. And if you are visiting, we've already welcomed you, but I just want to welcome you again. And if you're sort of new to church and how churches function or operate, there's a number of components to a service. And this is one of those components. This is where we preach the Word of God or we proclaim it. We try and explain it to help us understand it. As we just sang that song, we believe it is an ancient word, but it is also a relevant word. It is an unchanging word. 
And our pattern here at the church is generally to go through the Bible book by book. We will jump all over the place, but we'll take a particular book of the Bible and we'll work our way through it. There's a lot of advantages to that. Um, Certainly one of the advantages to that is that we don't skip anything. One of the disadvantages of that is we can't skip anything. And uh, when we come to a text like this, you might say, well, why, why did you pick this text for this Sunday, Paul? And I will basically say, well, I didn't really pick it for this Sunday. I, it was about six months ago that we determined to work our way through 1 Corinthians. And I have a sermon preaching schedule that I need to submit uh, months in advance that, uh, so that the worship team and different people can uh, be prepared. And so this is what is on the docket. It is a very encouraging portion of Scripture, although there are some challenges to it. And uh, I am thankful, though, that as we come to this particular book, um, it's written by one called the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a group of new Christians. These are people who have just realized new life in Christ. They've come to know uh, Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And they are living in a very difficult culture and facing some significant challenges as they do. And Paul is working through them some of the issues that they need to come to grips with and some of the challenges that they're going to face about what it means to be a follower of Christ and having come out of a world and a system of a world and a way of living and a way of thinking and embracing a whole new way of living and a whole new way of thinking. And so he's writing to them about sin and about sinners and about how we are to pattern our lives in the midst of a very complicated and often sinful dark world. I think it's very important for us, though, before we launch into these few verses that have just been read, to just remind ourselves how the book started, because it's important to keep that encouragement in mind and to understand the flow of this text, because before Paul deals with these issues that we've been in for the last two or three weeks, and actually for the last couple months, Paul started his book by telling us about God and about Jesus Christ. And he starts with our identity that is achieved through God and through Jesus Christ. He, he calls them the church of God. I love that. They belong to God. They are God's people. He also says to them that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called saints. And then he talks to them or he affirms to them what God has done for them. And he goes through a number of verses and he talks about God's grace given to them in the past. God's grace that they uh, receive in the present that sustains them. And then also God's grace that will bring them true safely at the very end of the age. Paul has great confidence in the power of God and the work of Christ on the cross to keep us before him, to sustain us, and to bring us before that great day when Christ will be revealed and he will pronounce us as being not guilty before that throne. He also talks about how the saints have been called into fellowship with God, and he describes God in this particular place as being a faithful God. I find that tremendously encouraging as I walk through life. I can be unfaithful many times, and yet God is always faithful. And so there's great encouragement that I believe these Christians received, and I received now by reading these words. And then he went over in the next couple chapters, um, and uh, um, as he's dealing with division, He brings back to the center of um, how to deal with division and disunity a focus on Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, the promised one, God's sent one to save us. And he also drills down on the cross. That the cross of Jesus is the place where our sins have been dealt with, where the patterns of our own life have been broken, and where we find hope in the new life and the life to come. It's in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross 
which the power of God and the wisdom of God are revealed to us. It's a wisdom that is beyond our coming up with on our own. It's a divine gift to us and a divine wisdom. And it's a wisdom because on the cross, Jesus Christ has dealt with our sin. He has defeated it. And so this is the sort of introduction as Paul lays this out. And then he deals with one issue after another. And so it's with that background that we come now to figure out what's going on in Corinth. And he's addressing some serious problems. As Ron read those texts, you might have been jolted a little bit. Um, but they had a wrong view. They were walking down a wrong path, this group of believers as it was related to sin. It's helpful to remember the context of Corinth just a little bit. While Corinth is uh, separated from us in history by almost 2,000 years, it's not separated from us in human nature. And Corinth, it became a synonym for immorality. It was a sex-crazed city. It was an evil city. And in fact, a word was invented to describe those who embraced sinful life, the, the, the Corinthians, and they would simply say they have been Corinthianized. And it simply meant that they were living a promiscuous life, that they were engaged in evil practices, and that they embraced forms of drunkenness. They were thieves. Um, uh, thievery was a huge problem in Corinth, a large city. But it was a huge problem because many of the homes, although the homes didn't have locks like our homes do. They didn't have security systems. People spent a lot of times in the public baths, which had no locker systems. They spent a lot of times in the public gymnasiums, which had no locker systems. And thieves just had a, had a field day in those three venues alone, uh, stealing belongings that were unlocked. It was a significant seaport. Uh, the city was filled with sailors who would gladly spend their money there. There was a famous temple to the goddess Epaphrodite, the goddess of love, and it stood on the top of the Acro-Corinth. And, and in the classical age, there was a, a thousand prostitutes or priestesses that were attached to that uh, temple. Many of them were sex slaves. They were bought and they were used to make money for their masters and money for the temple. In the evenings, they would come down off of the hilltop and wake, make their way through the city, and they would find various uh, individuals, obviously, and um, they would engage in sexual immorality with them. A Greek uh, geographer, Strabo, who writes around 20 AD, noted that because of these thousand prostitutes, the city used to be jam-packed and became wealthy. Ship captains would spend fortunes there, and so the proverb says the voyage to Corinth isn't for just any man. Included in the immorality of Corinth and the sexual immorality of Corinth was homosexuality. Homosexuality was rampant in classical Greek culture. I recently read a biography of Alexander the Great, which describes the extent of homosexual behavior and practice and lifestyle among the Greek culture. It was widespread, and the, it was socially, or the socially significant form of uh, same-sex relationships in ancient Greek was between adult men and pubescent or adolescent boys. It was known as pedestry. And this homosexuality moved not only from Greek culture into Roman culture, so much so that the first of the first 15 uh, emperors in Roman culture, 14 of them practiced or engaged in homosexual relationships. I point this out to not to illustrate that and hold it above any of the other uh, things that were going on in Corinth, but to just simply demonstrate that it, amongst many other things, had become normalized in Greek culture. 
And so the challenge for these new believers and these Christians was really, how do you work out your faith? How do you live out your faith in this kind of a context? This is what Paul is wrestling with them to help them come to grips with and understand. How should they deal with sexual immorality and the habits and the patterns of which they have been used to, but now they have been called out of? How do they live as Christians and remain in that context? Every day, no doubt, they were pressured into tolerating or even going along with the Corinthians' bombardment upon them of sexual imagery and evil practices. Every day, they would have felt the push to uh, live immoral lives and to go back in part to what they had left and to put up with those who do those sorts of things. What are they to do? It's the same questions that you and I face today. And I'm sorry that our kids are, are being raised in a culture that is like Corinth today. They are raised in a culture that is sexually immoral, that is full of evil practices, that is open to drunkenness, that is full of debauchery. And we have no difficulty relating to life in ancient Corinth. And sin, even though its penalty has been paid by Jesus Christ, and even though its power has been broken through his death on the cross, its effect and even its influence is still felt in the believer until the day that he or she dies. And so we too face very similar pressures to compromise and to tolerate and to practice such things that are practiced in the world around us. But this is not what God has called us to, beloved. We need to hear this word from Paul just as the ancient Corinthians needed to hear it. And so I'm just going to sort of drop us into three scenarios that are mentioned in these verses to maybe help us think through in a fresh way about these issues. The first is simply our relationship with sin and sinners and the associations that we have with sin and sinners. Paul had written an earlier letter it seems, in verse 9, where he had addressed issues of sexual immorality. But clearly, there had been some misunderstanding, or they had gone back on what Paul had told them. Because questions had come up again about how one is to interact with sinners. And so Paul spray, uh, uh, paints with broad strokes. This is not a, uh, uh, an itemized, comprehensive list, but rather it's given us a general picture of the situation in Corinth. And he says to them, he says, I wrote you not to associate with the sexually immoral of this world. And so he goes on, and, he, and what associate means with, or sorry, I shouldn't have said that. He's, first of all, he says, don't associate. I better read it exactly here. He says there, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. That's the issue I was getting at. And so then he describes a few of those things. And to associate simply means to mix with. But it's a difficult thing for us to work out in practice in our lives. The sexually immoral, as I said last week, are those who live outside of God's creational design of male and female and limiting all sexual activity to the marriage between one man and one woman. And so one of the broad issues is simply the issue of wrong relationships with people. Secondly, he talks about the greedy. These are uh, individuals who have an insatiable desire to accumulate and possess things for themselves. They have a wrong relationship with stuff. And then there are the idolaters. These are people who have displaced God and his place in their life and have substituted for God a God of their own choosing. They have a wrong relationship with God. And so this covers a wide swath of sinful practices and behaviors. Clearly, though, there had been some misunderstanding. 
Paul had told them not to associate with sexually immoral people, but he had not meant the sexually immoral of the world. Rather, the Christian brother or sister who is sexually immoral and unrepentant. Associations with the world, I think, are fascinating. Paul's view is consistent with Scripture. The challenge that Daniel faced when he was um, deported to Babylon was, how do I live and serve in this pagan, ungodly culture? How do I live in Babylon but not for Babylon? And we know that Daniel served for 60, 70 years faithfully God in the midst of such depravity. Jeremiah spoke to the exiles and he said to them, uh, 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 whom I have sent to exile into Jerusalem, to Babylon, he said, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and, son, and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. And multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city from where I have sent you into exile and pray, for it on the, or pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in, the wel- for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. You might remember that Jesus prayed not long before he was crucified to his father and he says I do not ask you speaking of his disciples that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one Paul wrote to the Philippians do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world If Paul had a meant that Christians, when we find the Lord, are to withdraw from the world, how would the people in Corinth ever have come to know about the gospel in Jesus Christ? They had misunderstood Paul's word to them. As Christians, we are to associate with the world around us, not engage in their sin, but to associate with the individuals in the world around us so they might see the light of Jesus Christ in our lives and see the difference that Christ makes when one is a child of God. And so the Bible is consistent in encouraging the children of God to live in and engage with the world around us. The church is to be in the world, but the world is not to be in the church. And so he clears up the misunderstanding and he says, No, no, you are not to associate with any brother, anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of, and then he lists these things. He adds to the list reviler or drunkard, and he fills it out. He fills out not to associate by adding not even to eat with such a one. Paul is recalling the picture or the image of leaven and how leaven can come into a body of Christ and Uh, It starts out small, but it impacts everyone in the church. And after all, the church is to be a pure and a spotless bride. He says, don't even eat with such a one. And I'm not convinced that I can make a decision. At this point, I hold both in task that it means don't only eat in, in in a social context, but also don't share the Lord's table with them. There's to be no mixing. It's not that Christians don't sin. We do. But we should never be comfortable in our sin. And as those who have been called out of the world and those who have professed to have new natures in Christ Jesus, 
We ought to never make a habit of sin. We ought to never practice sin in our lives. And if we do, then we ought to examine what Christ has done in our hearts and lives. Our new lifestyle should be, or our new, sorry, our new life should be reflected in a new lifestyle. And when there is no new lifestyle, isn't it reasonable that we ought to be able to question whether there is new life? Paul deals with a very relevant issue here. Christians can tend to be very harsh on those outside the church and very soft on sin inside the church. Paul says we have it all backwards. It's not our place as a church to judge those outside the church. God will do that, Paul says. But it is our place to judge those within the church, particularly those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, and yet continue to embrace again and again, repeatedly and unrepentantly, sinful practices and habits. For those that do, Paul doesn't mince words. He says, purge the evil one from among you. Why? Because the church is meant to be holy. The church is meant to be blameless and spotless before God. The church has been called out of the world, not into sin. So in the world, we are to be salt and light, In the church, we are to be transformed into the likeness and image of Christ. The second issue that Paul takes up, which is one that I think we as Christians have not sufficiently grasped yet, is our relationships within the family of God. And I simply put beside that, how dare you? The implication behind this and even the other things that Paul is saying is that the world is watching us. The world is watching you at work, at play, at rest. The world is watching you when you go on holidays. The world is watching you when you go out for lunch. They are watching us. And what they want to know is, are they different? Does Christ make a difference in their life? Does new life change the way one behaves? Does our profession of faith influence our behavior? In this particular instance, there was a problem with litigation. And the Greeks uh, were naturally and characteristically a litigious people. In fact, they enjoyed um, the law courts and the law system. And if you had nothing to do during the day, then you would go for entertainment down to the place wherever they did these uh, legal proceedings, and you would just watch, and, 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 and you might be one that was chosen to participate. It's like Judge Judy on steroids. Any number of, some of you watch Judge Judy. I know you do. But uh, it's, it's just this, oh, let's just watch what's going on now. Let's just see what they're fighting about. Let's just see these petty differences that are being brought up, and let's just see what she says about it. In ancient Greek courts, they were generally fairly inexpensive, and they were run by lay people. Court officials were paid very little, if anything, and most trials were completed in a day, and private cases done even quicker. Generally, there were no court officials, there were no lawyers, and no official judges. A case would normally consist of two litigants, arguing if an unlawful act had been committed. The jury then would decide whether or not the accused was guilty, and should he be guilty, what punishment there would be. And I think this is part of what ticked Paul off. In Athenian courts, the juries tended to be made up of the common people. And in, in the Athenian little litigation system, the courts had, uh, were, were seen generally as a, a system for settling disputes and resolving arguments rather than enforcing a coherent system of rules, rights, and obligations. Their court system was nothing like our court system today. 
in its civil and its it, it's it's um, uh, in all our aspects of our legal system today. In ancient Athens, there were two types of lawsuits. There were public prosecutions which were heard. Listen to this. And again, this is what I think is bothering Paul. They were, li- they were heard by juries of 501 or more. And they would increase by increments of 500, depending on how many jurors they wanted. With private suits, they were heard by 201 or 401 jurors, depending on the amount of money at stake. Juries were made up a group of men that were selected at the beginning of every year, 6,000 of them that would volunteer for this service. Again, the legal system was not as complex or as developed as ours today. The Greek law generally dealt with laws of inheritance, adoption, laws of commerce and contract, and of settling disputes and resolving arguments. So what Paul is dealing with here then is the inability of these new Christians to resolve their petty differences amongst one another, their contractual differences amongst one another, their disputes that they were having with each other. And in this context, Paul can't believe what he's hearing. He says, when you have a grievance against one another, and that's understandable, we will have grievances with one another. It will happen. We'll go into business with one another. We'll, 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 we'll be ticked off because you opened your car door in the parking lot and scratched my car. There's, there's just a gazillion of things that can go wrong, and so di- disputes will happen. But Paul says, how dare you go before the unrighteous to solve this issue? How dare you go before hundreds of people and have this issue resolved in such a public matter. He's shocked by this, not because he doesn't have confidence in the Greek legal system at all, but because of their lack of confidence in the saints of God, in the people of God, in the wisdom that God fills them for, and because of their lack of concern that the world is watching them. And he will say to them, don't you have any saints that are able to settle your dispute and instead you go before the unrighteous and air your dirty laundry? Before them? Will not your case become a point of mockery and derision and discussion among those who wonder if Christ makes a difference at all and if new life changes how we look at issues? Paul looks to the future to make his case in the present. These are a couple of the more difficult uh, verses in this particular section, but he uses this phrase, do you not know? It's a little bit of a slight rebuke. In other words, he's saying, you should know if you don't know. But do you not know? Use four times. For all your wisdom and all your knowledge, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? Now, Paul is looking forward to at least the judgment day, if not farther than that. And he's making a statement about the people of God. We will one day judge the world. Those in the kingdom of God have a role to play in administering kingdom justice. You might recall the 12 um, disciples were arguing with Jesus about different things. And finally Jesus said to them, well, one day in heaven you will sit on 12 thrones judging Israel. Uh, We can go to Daniel chapter 7 and I would encourage you to do that. Daniel chapter 7 starting at verse 9 and realize that Daniel looks forward to a day when God will come 
and his kingdom will be manifest. And that kingdom will be served by tens of thousands of those who will do God's will. The saints amongst them judging the world, I believe. And so Paul is looking ahead to that. And he says, listen, you're one day going to judge the world. Are you not confident to judge trivial cases now? It's an amazing statement that Paul makes. It's, it's a sharp rebuke on these Christians as they're making their way through the world. He's saying, listen, you do have the ability. And this is just small stuff compared to what you're going to do one day. Surely you are competent, he says. I was thinking about this in quite a bit this last week. The legal system of our world is generally about justice. There's often a winner and a loser it's about exacting a pound of flesh. It's about making your point. It's about affirming your rights. Contrast this with the kingdom ethic and the justice of God. Matthew chapter 5 to 7, for example, talks about the fact that if we're made to go one mile, go another mile. If somebody smacks us on the left cheek, turn and give them the right cheek. If someone wants our cloak, give them our other coat as well. If we are sinned against by another brother are we not to forgive them just once or twice no 70 times seven if your brother sins against you and you go to him and he he confesses and he repents and apologizes, forgive him show grace and mercy be like your father in heaven towards them it's a different set of principles justice in the kingdom of god is very different from justice in the kingdom of the world it's very different. And just think about this for a moment, loved ones. You who are a follower of Jesus Christ and walking with God and love him. Have you ever thought about how God treated you before his court of justice? That God could have called all of creation, the heavens and the earth, everything that he had made, the angels in heaven, and he could have said, okay, I'm going to have this little court system with Paul and myself. And I want you to bear witness to what Paul has done and how he has lived and how he has broken my law and how I have given him that law. And, and I, I want you to know who is right and who's wrong here. What does Paul deserve? And we know that you go back to Genesis and it says, well, Paul deserves death. But God says, no, I will commute his sentence and I will put it on my son. I will show him grace and I will show him mercy. I will forgive him of his sins. That is the same kind of ethic that we are to bring into our disputes with one another. To be gracious and merciful and forgiving. Do you not know, Paul also says, that we will judge angels? <laughs> I'm, I wrestle with that in my head. I, I wonder if that's a reference to fallen angels. That we will have some role to play in the life to come in the judgment of fallen angels. I Wondered from time to time over the years if that also means that we might even judge the holy angels in the sense that they are ministering servants sent to serve us and there might be some interaction that we have on that basis. I don't know, but one thing is clear. That that judgment of angels is something that is part of the new heaven and earth. And Paul is looking ahead to that day and he's coming back into the present. He says, listen, if you're going to judge angels, don't you think that... You've got qualified men and women amongst you to judge a dispute between two brothers or two sisters in Christ. Again, Paul says, why do, you, why do you want to spill all your stuff before a watching, unrighteous, unbelieving world? 
And there's a bit of an irony here. Paul says to these Corinthians who have been boasting, we've seen for the last number of weeks, about their own wisdom, how, no, how smart they were and how wise they were and how knowledgeable they were. And Paul says, you mean to tell me that there is not one among you wise enough to decide between a dispute that two of you have? Paul can't believe it. The ethic of the kingdom of God had not been absorbed, had not been embraced, had not been understood, had not been explained, had not filtered down yet. If it had, there wouldn't have been these multiple instances of them taking their court stuff or their grievances out of the church and into the unrighteous court system of Corinth. If you are at the point this morning in which you are considering taking a brother or sister to court, you've already lost before you've even had a chance to present your case. Why not suffer loss? Why not suffer loss? Why not just say, okay, I'm going to write this one off for the sake of Christian unity and for the sake of the relationship with my brother or sister in Christ. I'm just going to do this one as a write-off. I'm going to forget about it. Why not be defrauded? Why not just let it go? Why not just suck it up? Why not just absorb it? Why not just, just accept the, the pain and even the wrongness that's been put on you and let it go for the sake of Christian unity and for the sake of fellowship with your brother? You see what Paul is saying, don't you? When you trust in Christ, things become different. The way of the world and the way of the kingdom of God are different. They're rooted in different principles. And the final point, is our relationship with God, that is the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 6-9. Who are we to judge the world? God will do that. But morality in the family of God and the kingdom of God matters a great deal. I have thought about this from time to time. I, I don't know the answer, but I know where I'm leaning. I wonder sometimes if the church is over-involved in the morality of the world because we meddle and we judge them rather than leaving that to God while we are under-involved in the morality of the church. In fact, I'm not sure how much the Bible describes our role as policing the world. To be sure, we do need to be those who promote justice and those who seek peace and those who stand for life. But Paul reminds us very clearly that the primary role of the Christian is to not judge the world, but to judge those inside the church. As I said earlier, our new life will become apparent in a new lifestyle, and when there is no new lifestyle, it's reasonable to question new life. Paul writes to Timothy, let those who name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ depart from iniquity. Not live with it, not play in it, not go back into it. Let them depart from iniquity. And Peter would say, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So he asks a significant question. And again, his concern is not with the world out there, but with the people of God in here. And he simply says to them, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
directed towards the Corinthians who seem to want to live in both worlds. It seems to be directed to a people of God who haven't quite yet understood that when you, are, that when you have new life in you, when you embrace Jesus Christ, that you leave the world behind and you pursue a kingdom ethic and morality. The kingdom of God is the domain of God. And like any other kingdom, it has morals and ethics that reflect the king and his character. The kingdom of God is so prominent in the Bible. Jesus came proclaiming it. Um, we have been invited into it. It is not something that we can choose in our own strength and our own ability. It's something that God changes our hearts and a work of the Spirit. Um, uh, uh, by the work of the Spirit, we are born again. And we, are, we enter into the kingdom of God. It's this amazing privilege that we have to go from one kingdom to another kingdom by the power and the will of God. The kingdom of God is always characterized by righteousness and by righteous subjects. Paul says very clearly, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a warning, beloved, not to the world out there, but to the church, the people of God. It's directed to you and I not to ever become comfortable with sin. Not to ever believe that we can live with sin and practice sin and become habitually engaged in sin and think that we have a place in the kingdom of God. He says, does sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, thievery, greed, drunkenness, reviling, swindling fit the Christian calling? Think this through, loved ones. This is the pattern of the Bible from beginning to end. These are things that are practiced by the world, by those who don't know God. But God has called us to a different life and a different lifestyle. The pursuit of sin, which we once engaged in, has now been replaced with a pursuit of righteousness. He says there's a deadly deception out there. We need to hear this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. What's that all about? I don't know if you listened to the song that we sang, um, but it says that these words are to change us. We are not to change these words. And this is what is happening in the culture around us, particularly the Christian culture, as it is giving in to more and more liberal tendencies and more and more um, unrighteousness is seeping into the church and we are now changing the word of God to fit our practices rather than changing our practices to fit the word of God. It says, do not be deceived. Those that practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But there's this incredible hope. I find this just one of the more um, hopeful passages of Scripture to an individual. And such were some of you. That's not saying that every one of us here fit into this category, but what it is saying is the power of God is able to break even the deepest ingrained patterns of sin. And I don't understand why always God does not do that immediately when someone puts their faith and trust in Christ, but I know it happens enough to have great confidence that God can both change you instantly or he can give you the strength to change over time. Such were some of you. 
And there's three buts in this passage that many of our translations don't have anymore. But he says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. This is an incredible word of God to the people of God. He says, but you were washed. You were washed by the blood of Jesus. You were washed through the work of the Holy Spirit. You have been cleansed. You have been purified. You have been made new. You have been washed from the inside out. And he says, but you were sanctified. It's a beautiful word. You have been made holy. You have been set apart by God and for God. You've been called out of one way of living into another way of living. And he says, but you were justified. You were made righteous. You now can stand before God. And he declares you as righteous before him. It's an incredible thing that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And he's saying it's not possible. It it shouldn't be comfortable for one to live with a foot in unrighteousness and a foot in righteousness. I'm no fool when it comes to sin. My own sin or other people's sin. And I do know this, that sometimes coming out of Corinth, quotation marks, coming out of Parksville, may take a lifetime. But we can get on the road that we enter through the narrow gate that leads from Corinth to the eternal city of God. And on that road, there are a lot of turnoffs here and there that say, well, pursue this, well, pursue that. And we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. We keep our eyes fixed on the eternal city. And we stay on that narrow road and enter through the narrow gate. And I am so convinced that as we get on that road, it is the road that leads to life. And it is the road that God can keep us on. There's incredible hope here for anybody here today who maybe just feels doomed and crushed by your sin. Your situation is not hopeless. Sin does not have to win the battle in your life. Because God is able through Jesus Christ and through the power of the cross to display his wisdom in you and his power in and through you and call you out of a life of righteous unrighteousness into a life of righteousness. Washed. Sanctified. Justified. Paul uses some of the deepest, richest theological language to remind the Corinthians that Jesus Christ, by his shed blood on the cross, washed away all the stains of their sin, separated them out to be a people of God's possession, and declared them not guilty the moment they trusted in Jesus Christ. And the same is true for every one of us here today. May God help us to grasp afresh and anew the beauty and the wonder of the life that God has called us to And the darkness and the stain and the slavery of the life that he has called us from. And may we walk in freedom because of what Christ has done for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word today. Ancient words which are so relevant for our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.